You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Bible Prophecy Update to the Kingdom of God, Part 2 of the 2022 series. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. So this is the second talk in a two-part series given at Kent Prophecy Day on the 2nd of April 2022. Brother Don Pierce presents his Milestones Update, of which he's doing approximately four this year. This is the second and it goes into detail current events and how they relate to things pertained in the Bible, Bible prophecy. Um, absolutely fascinating uh, some of the things that Brother Don brings forward for us to consider. Um, I understand that there are many in the Christian community who do not feel that Bible prophecy is a relevant preaching tool. I find that astounding um, considering that Christ warned us to watch. Anyway, whatever you think on prophecy, have a listen to this episode and let us know what you think. Until next time, God bless. So what we're going to be looking at uh, this afternoon, just want a few brief words about new milestones, but we're going to spend most of our time looking at the situation in the Ukraine. We're going to spend much of the time looking at the situation in the Ukraine and seeing how things are working out according to God's plan, in spite of the appearances that things don't look to be very good. And then we'll just, towards the end, just look at the working out of the Abraham Accords, because again, this is a dramatic sign for our times when just in the past less than two years since they were signing the Abraham Accords, suddenly nations are now working with Israel at an unprecedented rate. And it's very encouraging that the things that we knew from scripture should come to pass are coming to pass before our eyes. And then very, very briefly, just a couple of slides, looking at Israel and the United Kingdom. So just a few words to say on milestones. I took the decision to uh, stop printing milestones in order to ease the burden that it caused. There's a lot of work with packing them and sending them. And a lot of problems with the escalating costs, printing costs, paper costs, postage costs. They're going up again on Monday in this country. And though a hard copy is very nice to hold, it does have these limitations. And so because I wanted to increase the readership of Milestones, I took the decision to uh, make it available to everybody free of charge, but electronically. So end of, sorry, the beginning of February, the first edition came out and that spent most of its pages looking at the things that happened last year, acting as a bridge from the last hard copy, Milestones 2000, 
this as it were was milestones 2021 uh, and from now onwards and god willing the end of next week uh, if everything goes to plan uh, part two will be ready uh, and that will be looking at events uh, in Ukraine, very much the things that we're looking at now. So the advantage of being able to send it out every two months is that it can be much more up to date. So often uh, when the hard copy is out of date before it's even printed, but by coming out regularly, hopefully we can look at things in real time as it were. So. That's the email address if you want to go on the snippets list, uh, on the milestones list, sorry, uh, just send me an email. I'll put that email up uh, at the end. So Ukraine, that's been the focus of the world since uh, five weeks ago when Russia invaded. And to make sense of what is happening in the Ukraine, we have to bear in mind that this is a holy war. As Putin is concerned, this is what is driving him. Because Ukraine was the birthplace of Russia, and Ukraine was where their religion started. So it has eminent uh, significance to Russia, birthplace of the state, the birthplace of their religion. And so there is this huge drive by Putin to gather back these strayed sections of what was the original Soviet Union, which all broke up in 1991 when that fell apart and these countries gained their independence. He wants to bring them back. And to his mind, that event of the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe that had happened to Russia. And he is determined to bring back all those disparate parts and regrow the Russian empire as it used to be in its former glory. So that's what he is aiming at. And remember, this is a holy war. So where do we start uh, with uh, look? Well, best thing is to start in Genesis because that's the origin of all things. So if we turn to Genesis chapter 10, we have there the origins of the nations. And what we're particularly interested in, we know from Ezekiel 38, that is this assembly of nations who come against Israel and are broken by Christ and the saints coming up from Sinai. But it's the places, the people that are listed here, that it's so interesting to take our link back to Genesis chapter 10. Gog, we're told, is of the land of Magog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, uh, we're told in verse 2, and in verse 5 and 6, we're told of his companions, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Goma, and Tagama. Now, we shall see that these uh, come from uh, two families of Noah's, from Ham and Japheth, but predominantly from Japheth. So Gog is of the land of Magog, and we can see Magog there along the list of the sons of Japheth. Prince of Rosh and Tyrus, as we shall look at, is uh, the origin of Rosh and Meshach and Tubal. Uh, so he's the prince of those. 
And then he has his companions, Persia, which is Madai, descended from Madai, the Medes, Medes and the Persians. Uh, Ethiopia is one of the sons of Ham, uh, Cush, and Libya, Foot, uh, is another of Ham's sons. And then we have Goma and Tagama, his son. So it's, it's interesting, we have predominantly all these uh, nations which are going to be gathered against Israel come from these descendants of Japheth. None of them come from Shem, which is understandable because from Shem came the Jews and the Arab nations. Uh, so it's predominantly Japheth with two of the sons of Ham working together to come against Israel. Oh, and one says, well, what about Javan? Well, when we look at Genesis chapter 10, we see this that his powerful. son is Tarshish. Well, and so, as Matthew was uh, showing us, Tarshish is the power that will be on the side of Israel and therefore is in opposition to his uncles, as it were. So that, that's the background. And what we've got to explore now is the development of Tarshish to links with Russia. So Tyrus settled in the vicinity of what is now called Constantinople in Europe. And from him, the Thracians descended. And that country was anciently called Thrace. That's McKinsey in the world's great empires. So Thrace is marked there. It's on the western end of uh, Turkey today, but incorporated Constantinople, interestingly. And they were greatly feared warriors. They uh, were a very strong, powerful tribe. But when the time of the Persians, when the Persians moved across westward, they drove the Thracians uh, out from there uh, and drove them northward. So when we come to the time of the Greeks, we find that Tyrus has left his mark. There is the Tyrus River, now the Dnieper, um, that's right. Uh, and at the end of that river is the port city of Tyrus, which now is called Tiraspopol, which is the city of Tyrus. So the Tyrus, as he moves, leaves his mark in the geography, in the place names and the rivers uh, as he moved along. The Tyrians then moved across uh, eastward into Crimea, and the Greeks called that uh, Tarika. Uh, again, you can see the link with Tyrus. That was their Greek um, appellation of it. So that area was where the Tyrus established himself and then began to move upwards. The area was taken over by the Romans uh, and then uh, the Goths, when they came down and took Rome, they took this area as well. And then eventually this area came under the control of the Byzantine Empire. And there, uh, it was known as the Tauro-Scythian Empire or the Tauri Empire. Again, you can see this linkage with the word Tyrus, the Tauri Empire. Then 
they moved exploring further northwards as these men were great warriors and great explorers and they established Kiev. Now, um, well, at times call it Kiev and at times call it Kiev. Kiev is what it was known as uh, for years and years and years until Russia took Crimea and the Ukrainians drove out the Russian spellings of towns and changed them to Ukrainian ones. So uh, that's the modern spelling, but we're more used to it as K-I-E-V, Kiev. So this was where they established themselves, important trading city. And there was another city, and I haven't been able to trace whether it was movement of people even further north that established this city, it probably was this situation. But Novgorod uh, in the north there was another important city. And it was on a, a trading route. The Vikings came across to, down through these two cities to come down to Constantinople to do trade with the Mediterranean area. And that brought great prosperity and great movement of peoples. And this is where uh, the, that colored area was known as Kievan Rus. So here we have the beginning of the Rus part. Kiev Rus was for a long time known among the Greeks as Scythia or Tauri Scythia. These Tauri Scythians call themselves Rus. That's uh, a Russian historian, Gregor, uh, wrote that. And my ancient Encyclopedia Britannica, the 14th edition, Rosh, Rus, are uh, the ancient names for Russia. So that continued and prospered. Uh, and as I say, we can see the Rus part from the word Tyrus, that's the latter part. And uh, as these, and we can trace it with all the descendants of uh, Noah and his family, that they leave their names to geographical locations. And you can see the origin of these things. So Tyrus, you can see how that turns into Rus, Ross, or Rosh. Time moves on. Um, and uh, there was an amalgamation of this uh, area under one ruler, Prince Oleg. And he was succeeded by Prince Igor, that we're talking about 1880 um, AD. So he was succeeded by Prince Igor and the Soviet historians look upon him as the beginning of the princely line of Russia. It was his grandson, Vladimir the Great, uh, who extended the territory southward and took Crimea. And uh, he sent ambassadors out because he was a pagan. He sent ambassadors out to explore the religions that were extant in that day. They went to Jerusalem and studied the Jewish religion went to Constantinople and looked at the Orthodox uh, church there uh, and went to Rome to look at the Roman Catholic. And the ambassadors came back and said, we like what we see in Constantinople. So he went down to Constantinople, was instructed in the faith, 
and in return for being allowed to marry the Byzantine ruler's sister, he agreed to be converted and become an orthodox uh, believer. He goes back to Crimea and baptizes himself in Crimea and then goes back to Kiev and there he instructs all his kingdom, the whole kingdom, to be uh, baptized into the orthodox faith. And that was the beginning of the religion in this area, the orthodox religion brought by this great warrior, Vladimir the Great. So he had all his subjects uh, baptized uh, and this area then became Christian. That was fine until uh, Mongol invasions swept in and took Kiev and pushed them northward again. Uh, and so the people of Kiev um, took their religion uh, and their way of life and thinking, moved it northward. And eventually in 1462, Moscow became the center of Russia and the Russian religion. So that again is poor dukes in the history of Russia. Crimea, however, wouldn't come back under Russian rule until 1654, when there was a treaty made and uh, Crimea became under Russian control in 1654. We fast forward 300 years to 1954, and there were great celebrations in Russia to celebrate this coming back of uh, Ukraine and uh, Crimea back into the fold, as it were, uh, by this treaty. And Khrushchev was the Soviet leader at that time. And as a gift to uh, the people of Ukraine, he gave back control of Crimea. Up to that time, Crimea was governed from Moscow, whereas the Crimeans had a, a degree of autonomy within the Soviet empire. And so it was a gift, but they were all in the Soviet empire, so it didn't really make a lot of difference, but he, he gave them authority to uh, look after the affairs of Crimea. Little did Khrushchev know that less than 40 years later, the Soviet empire would fall. And as a result of that, with uh, Ukraine gaining their independence, that after that event, after 1991, Russia had to pay to Ukraine to use all her naval ports in Crimea. And that hurt, especially to Putin, that this gift that had been made uh, was now being turned against them. And they were now having to pay to the Ukrainians to use all the facilities which were so important to Putin as he built up his navy. Well, we know in 2014, that Putin took Crimea. And in celebration of Crimea coming under the Russian control, he caused a huge statue to be erected in Moscow under the shadow of the uh, Kremlin and under the shadow of the huge church in the middle there of this man, Vladimir um, the Great, who had brought Russia into being 
and have brought religion uh, into being the orthodox religion. And so it took a couple of years for it to be built and erected. And in 2016, there was an unveiling ceremony and you can see just that arrow above Putin as he gives his talk um, to celebrate this uh, great man that he highly esteemed, Vladimir the Great, the birthplace of Russia and her religion. And so what he said at this uh, unveiling, this new monument is a tribute of respect to our distinguished ancestor, an especially revered saint, statesman and warrior, and spiritual founder of the Russian state. Prince Vladimir created the foundation for a strong, united, centralized state, thus incorporating various peoples, tongues, cultures, and religions into one great family. His era knew many achievements, the most important and pivotal of them being the baptism of Rus. This choice became the common spiritual fountain for the peoples of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, and lay the foundations of moral values which define our lives even until now. Precisely this sturdy moral support, cohesion and unity helped our ancestors overcome difficulties and live and triumph for the glory of the fatherland, strengthening from generation to generation its power and greatness. And today our duty is to stand together against modern challenges and threats leaning on our spiritual precepts to move forward, ensuring the continuity of our thousand year history. So what is interesting is Putin sees the West as being very liberal um, and uh, introducing all sorts of ways of life which are displeasing to Putin and the Orthodox Church. And he sees that with Ukraine, looking uh, to the West, that this is uh, something that is wrong. And his task is to bring these people back and reimpose these moral standings uh, against this evils of Westernization. And then last year, he wrote a 5,000 word essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. On the 14th of July, that was published. Uh, and this is a comment uh, looking at what he had written. In one particularly ominous passage, he openly questions the legitimacy of Ukraine's borders and argues that much of modern day Ukraine occupies historically Russian lands before stating matter of factly, Russia was robbed. Elsewhere, he hints at a fresh annexation of Ukrainian territory, claiming, I am becoming more and more convinced of this. Kiev simply does not need Donbass. Putin ends his lengthy treatise by appearing to suggest that Ukrainian statehood itself ultimately depends on Moscow's consent, declaring, I am confident that true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible only in partnership with Russia. And some of you might uh, know Adrian Hilton in the book that he wrote, Principalities and Powers of Europe, where he showed the intrigue of the Vatican in what happens in Europe. 
And he made this very interesting comment on this uh, uh, essay that he had written and subsequent events, because this was written on the 28th of February. When Putin refers to the spiritual security of Russia and refers to Ukraine as an inalienable part of Russian history, culture, and spiritual space, that spiritual security and spiritual space reside in the Moscow Patriarch. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kievan Patriarch is schismatic and must be brought back into the fold of Russian Orthodoxy. We'll look at that in a moment. It is God's will. Without control over Ukraine, the Moscow Patriarch wouldn't be the biggest Orthodox Church. The Russian Church would lose the basis of its vision to be the center of world orthodoxy. The situation is comparable to the breakup of the Soviet Union, he added. Without Ukraine, the Soviet Union was no longer a superpower. So again, you can see that this is part of this holy war. We've got to bring them back. Uh, the churches within uh, Ukraine are dividing and moving away from the Moscow Patriarch. And this is something which is very displeasing to Putin and to Kirill, who is the uh, Russian um, leader of the Russian church. As Kirill put it uh, at the beginning of the year, Ukraine is not on the periphery of our church. We call Kiev the mother of all Russian cities. For us, Kiev is what Jerusalem is for many. Russian Orthodoxy began there. So under no circumstances can we abandon this historical and spiritual relationship. The whole unity of our local church is based on these spiritual ties. As I say, there are two rival churches within Ukraine. One, the original one was tied to Moscow, and that was fine. And then when the uh, Soviet Union broke up, a church emerged, uh, which has now become independent and is no longer recognized by the Moscow church, but is recognized by Constantinople, the uh, Bartholomew, the patriarch of Constantinople. So this is a sore thorn to both uh, Putin and Kirill, that their holy church is splintering. And there was just uh, only this week uh, this uh, extra bit of information that 28 communities have officially switched from the old church that recognized Moscow to this newly independent one since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. They've been so upset that Kirill is supporting the death of so many uh, Russians and Ukrainians that they have switched allegiances in their churches. So this is added to the fuel of this holy war. We've got to do something about it. And so the Russian Orthodox Church paints the conflict in Ukraine as a holy war. So that's what we've been seeing. Now, the trumpet is a source which one has to take with great care because they have certain things the right interpretation of prophecy, but a lot of things wrong. But they do see uh, the growth of Europe, the growth of Germany, uh, and the influence that the Vatican has. 
And so I thought I'll put this headline up. When the Pope meets Putin, Ukraine needs to fear. This was before the invasion took place. Um, we have to go back in history and see this division of the churches. Until 1054, they were all in uh, uh, union. But in 1054, there was this division. And we have the Roman Catholic churches uh, over in the West, and we have the Ethan, Eastern Orthodox churches over in the East, and division between them. And that, of course, corresponds to the two legs of Nebuchadnezzar's image. Uh, it splits into two. So we have the Western powers and the Eastern powers. In the West, we have the Holy Roman Empire, uh, centered in Germany, the Holy Roman Empire, the Germanic nations, and Roman Catholicism being influential there. And the other leg was the Byzantine Empire, and when Constantinople fell and that moves up and uh, transfers to Moscow, then we have the Eastern Orthodox Church in that leg. And again, it helps us to see that uh, we have two legs and we now have the feet forming before our eyes. It, it gives us an indication of how the lines are going to fall out. But using the language of Revelation in chapter 16, we have a beast power which corresponds to the West. We have a dragon power which corresponds to the East. And we have the false prophet corresponding to the papacy, who is going to be the one that drives Nebuchadnezzar's image to come and invade the land of Israel. So it is clear that just as Russia is wanting to bring these countries which were part of her empire, who have now gone to the West, he needs to bring them back. We can see what a big task ahead there is. There's a lot more countries other than Ukraine that are involved, the Balkans and Poland and uh, Greece and Turkey, as it were, have all got to become under the uh, control of Russia. So this concept that Putin has, we want to gather all our scattered members back again. Uh, Russian roulette, the Pope's eumenical dilemma in Ukraine. See, the Pope has been working very hard to bring about reconciliation between the two branches. He wants to heal the rift of a thousand years ago. And in 2016, he met the Patriarch Kirill in Cuba, and there was a, this great reunion. It was a remarkable uh, time that they had together. And ever since, the Pope has been trying to get permission to be able to go to Russia to meet with Kirill again, but on Russian territory rather than a far off country. And in fact, uh, end of last year, it was agreed that, yes, there would be a meeting. Uh, the date hasn't been revealed, but it was to be sometime this year. Now, whether in the light of events that will take place, we don't know. It will depend how it all works out. But the Pope has been in a very difficult position because he wants to work with Kirill, he wants to work with Russia, uh, and yet, you know, all this is happening uh, close to his patch, as it were, in Ukraine. It's put him in a difficult position. 
And what he did was a master stroke, but we just come to that in the next slide. Putin is very interested in the power that the Vatican has. He has made six visits uh, to the Vatican. He went to see John Paul II in 2000 and 2003. He met with Benedict in 2007 and has met with Francis in 2013, 2015 and 2019. And the time that they spend together is much longer than normal heads of state have when they visit the Vatican. And it will be lovely if we could be a fly on the wall and hear what they were talking about. We have planned statements that are issued. But they plan to work together. They have similar aims. The Pope wants to stop the uh, westernization, the decadence that is uh, associated with the Western way of life, as does Putin. And so we can be sure that behind the scenes there's a, a lot of working together. But as I say, the masterstroke for uh, Francis was to call together, and this was a week yesterday, a uh, week last Friday, all the Roman Catholic bishops in whatever country they were, as close as they could to six o'clock Rome time, dedicated Russia and Crimea, and Ukraine, sorry, uh, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. We know it's a, a travesty that Mary is dead and she'll be appalled when at the resurrection she rises and learns what this false religion has done in her name. But the thing about the worship of Mary, it is very strong not only in the Roman Catholic Church, it's even stronger in the Russian Orthodox Church. So this was his method of bringing the two sides together to say, well, we're going to give it all into the care of Mary. She will look after it. So where is it all going to end in Ukraine? Uh, this is the situation as on Thursday. I was hoping the BBC would do an update for yesterday, but they don't seem to work on a Saturday, so that's the closest we can get. Uh, what we have to appreciate is the vast size of Ukraine. It, it's the biggest country uh, of Europe that's uh, solely in Europe. Russia is actually bigger, intrudes into Europe, but also into Asia. But uh, of countries just solely in Europe, Ukraine is the biggest. It's bigger than France. So, you know, this is not a tiddly little country at all. It's a vast one. And after five weeks, I don't seem to have got very far. It has been a disaster. Interestingly, The Economist on the Wednesday had this chart. Um, it was, the article was headed under unprecedented sanctions. How's the Russian economy faring? Uh, and go three charts. Top one there shows how the rule, the Russian currency, absolutely plummeted. It lost uh, a third of its value uh, in just a few days, but it has steadily climbed back up, and it's only ten percent below where it was, in spite of all the uh, sanctions that have been put on Russia. The next one is the stock market, 
It was closed for a month because of all the turbulence having plunged. They shut the markets, but when the market reopened, it was expected that it would continue to plunge down because of all the sanctions, but it is held reasonably level. And the third chart is an interesting one where they try and calculate uh, GDP uh, on a day-by-day -day basis, moving you know, 12 monthly, rolling along, as it were. And again, you can see that it uh, hasn't fallen off very much. In other words, in spite of all the sanctions that the West have been trying to put on Russia, it hasn't really worked. And of course, with oil prices remaining very high, money is flooding into Russia to finance any war efforts that she wants. Now, when we come to about Wednesday this week, it seems that uh, Putin woke up to the fact that things were going rather badly. Uh, and uh, he says that we're going to cease attacking Kiev uh, and we're going to concentrate down in the south because one of his most important aims is to make a land bridge from Russia along southern uh, Ukraine to the um, little link bridge that Crimea has to Ukraine. He wants to have direct access and that's why he's putting so much effort into taking that region. Uh, and again, it is just this tail end of this week that he's woken up to, as I say, the disaster that has been taking place, that the information that has been fed by his generals because he lives in isolation um, uh, hasn't been true. And there was a lovely cartoon in the Telegraph yesterday on the scale of nine to 10, how glorious is our campaign? And um, the Russian general is saying, well, we can't answer that because it's so disastrous. Um, so that, that's summed up the situation. It has gone disastrously as far as Putin is concerned. They've lost a lot of troops, a lot of generals, uh, a lot of soldiers, um, and they haven't made the gains that they expected. I want us now to go to scripture to see, before we look at what is, uh, I think was going to happen, is to see what scriptural background we can have as to this situation. So it's up on the screen, but just turn to Daniel chapter 8. Um, it's uh, about the little horn that grows out of the Greek Seleucid kingdom, the king of the north. King of the North, going back BC times, was in trouble, called its ally Rome to come and help. Rome came and helped and stayed and conquered and took over and incorporated the Greek Empire into the Roman Empire. And so it was that in the depiction that's given in uh, Daniel chapter 8, um, which Isaac dealt with in our Bible class, this power, this little horn power, represented Rome especially its military aspects, the Byzantine Empire, which then was forced northward after the fall of Constantinople uh, and then ends up at Moscow and is the Russian power today and goes through various things which have been fulfilled. And then in uh, verse 23, it tells us what's going to happen in the latter days when the transgressors are come to the full, the king of fierce countenance, 
and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully and prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now, that's quite a remarkable passage. Um, it's, the king is described as being of fierce countenance, um, and his power is mighty, but not by himself. And one could look at today and see that the power lies in the generals rather than in the headship of Putin himself, but be that as it may, or it may be referring to past history, when this power adopted Christianity uh, and Christianity became the core center uh, of its working. But what we're interested in through his policy, and this is talking about in the latter days, through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. Now, just at the bottom of the quote there, in my brown bricks driver, um, it says that this word craft is deceit or treachery. So that's an important word. It's through craft and treachery that he prospers. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, he's going to be a proud man, and by peace shall destroy many. Uh, and we know this is latter days because it goes on to say, he shall also stand against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And we know that Gog is going to lead these confederate armies to come against Israel, to destroy the nation of Israel, and he will find his demise at the hand of Christ and the saints who come up to save Israel. The prince of princes will show that he has greater power than this prince of Gog. And very interesting, that word broken is in ancient Hebrew is the word that is used of corn on the threshing floor being crushed in order to separate the corn out from the chaff. And we know that this standing up against the prince of princes and being broken is descriptive of the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon is not the invasion of Gog into Israel, it's the defeat of Gog upon the mountains of Israel. And the New Testament describes it as Armageddon. He perceives in a valley for threshing. Joel uses the same terminology in chapter three. And so it's interesting, this word, he shall be broken. It was a deliberate choice by God to depict this uh, Armageddon aspect of it. So it's by peace, not by war, is going to destroy many. And so I think that what is going to happen is that we're going to have a time of peace. But before we look at that, let's just look at um, Daniel chapter 2. We've looked at this before, but the western leg, which incorporates uh, the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire, that came to an end in World War I, uh, when the Habsburg monarch Charles I abdicated and stepped down, 
And then from there onwards, there was this change. And we know as we move towards the forming of the feet, the characteristic of the feet, it's still got iron in it, which was in the legs, but it's iron mixed with clay. And we understand clay speaks to us of democracy, people power. And interestingly, at the time in 1918 and onwards, then that came people power, democracy, votes for the ordinary people, votes for women uh, followed on. And as a result, we have the post-Brexit uh, Europe being formed. Uh, still a long way to go, but I think this, what has happened over the past few weeks will be a powerful push to bring Europe as a beast system with its own army and its own forces. On the other side, on the eastern side, exactly the same time, 1918, that came to an end with the murder of Star Nicholas II. A long time after, when Soviet fell, democracy introduced, but no, it's iron mixed with clay. Um, it's uh, autocratic and democratic. Um, and we have the rebirth of the Russian church because iron, we have to look at from two aspects, the military might and the religious might. That's what's got to change in Europe. The power of the papacy has got to increase. Uh, and as Europe forms with Germany as its great leader, then we shall find the uh, Europe will be working with the papacy. But yes, we've got two legs. We're now in the forming of the feet stage. And this is all happening, all revolving around Israel, because it was as a result of World War I that uh, the occupying power of Egypt was Britain, uh, the king of the south, pushed the occupying power in Syria, the Ottoman power, out of the region, back into Turkey, in order that Israel and the other nations might be reborn. So it's interesting that, you know, although the legs have lasted a long, long time, suddenly things are moving again because Israel is back in the land and events can roll forward. So have we misunderstood prophecy? Because uh, we find that Europe is fighting against Russia, not working with her. And Russia is supposed to be this great military power, but, you know, that's not what we're seeing. It seems very weak and disunited. And Britain is the power that is actually leading the action uh, against Russia in Ukraine. And yet we've we expected that uh, Britain would not be working with Europe, will be working elsewhere. Well, what we're going to remember that this isn't the gathering of the nations to Armageddon. This is but one step, which will ultimately end in that. This is an adjustment of the scenery, as it were, as time moves on. And it's having a lot of ramifications in Israel, in Europe, in Britain. And what we have to remember is the next step is not going to be Gog gathering his people against Israel. Next step is the Lord Jesus coming back to his household. And that's going to take place several years, up to 10 years, before uh, Gog falls on the mountains of Israel. So what we have to bear in mind is that this is not the end picture. Uh, and we shall just see in a moment that actually it's a bit of an illusion that Europe 
is working against Russia. And two, yes, that certainly has been the case. But with all the wealth that is flowing into Russia, lessons will be learned. She will rebuild herself and learn all the lessons from the disaster that has taken place. And three, yes, although Britain is heavily involved and Russia acknowledges that Britain is the leader in supplying Ukraine with weaponry and that to resist the Russians, I think when this all finishes and France and Germany and Italy rush back to have their cosy alliance with Russia, that Britain will realise that perfidious Germany uh, we're not going to have anything to do with her. And she'll turn, as she's doing at the moment, to Israel, to the Gulf, to the Commonwealth. And what we have to remember is that what is happening is God using influences to make big changes. There's got to be big changes in Europe. There's got to be big changes in Britain. There's got to be big changes in the Middle East. And this is having a knock-on effect. And yes, we're not going to be there, God willing. We're going to be called away before we see the final assembly of the image to come down into Israel. So have we misunderstood prophecy? Do we need to reinterpret it? No, we haven't got to this final picture. Let's remember those two words from Daniel chapter 8. Craft, deceit, treachery and peace. So I think there's going to be pushed by Kirill and the Pope to have some peace agreement with Russia to end the carnage in Ukraine. And some accommodation. Russia wants to build back the empire and Russia is holding a lot of the strings. Uh, she has gas, she has oil, she has food, she has raw materials, metals, which Europe desperately needs to prosper. And so it's not difficult to see a compromise being made, right? Russia, if you do it nice and peacefully, stop this war and gradually bring these people back into your empire and let us trade again with you and have your gas and oil and your metals and that, then some agreement will come to pass. And this time of peace, we know there's going to be peace in the Middle East. I think from Daniel chapter 8, there's going to be a kind of similar dramatic peace in Europe. And bear in mind that what's happened in the Middle East, less than two years and great changes. So things can move very quickly when the powers that be, the religious powers, influence the people to get what they want. But we know that God is going to pour out his judgments. It's going to be a terrible world. And that's one of the blessings that the saints are going to be withdrawn from it. So yes, maybe a period of peace and uh, uh, growing prosperity, um, but God was going to send his punishments, his judgments as he did against Egypt. Pandemics and earthquakes and floods and fires will increase more and more as we get to the end time. So what we have to bear in mind with the picture in Daniel chapter 7 of the fourth beast was of a, a mouth which had iron teeth 
uh, and feet which had brass claws. And we know, going back to Daniel chapter 2, that the head, the golden head with its eyes and mouth, represents Babylon the Great, the papacy, is the directing power that brings Europe and Russia and these other nations together and brings them down against Israel. So the mouth, iron, we associate with Rome and the Roman things. Brass we associate with Greece. And again, we saw from the next chapter that the military power is very much comes from that uh, Byzantine empire of Rome and its movement up into Russia. Russia is the claws, as it were, and the Vatican, the teeth, that brings about the destruction of Israel as a nation. So what's Europe's true position? Just uh, a week last month, big meeting of the EU, and they drew up this uh, strategic compass, a new drive to military unification, building up their army, independence from NATO, and Germany was going to take the core and the leadership in this drive. So this is one of the fruits of what has happened this tremendous pressure now on Europe to not depend on America, but to build up her own independence, her own forces, which is what we would expect. If there is a beast system, it has to be independent, as it were, standing on its own feet. And very interestingly, America has agreed, and Germany has agreed, to purchase these F-35 uh, planes one of their main purposes is to carry the nuclear bombs which are stored in Germany. And the planes that Germany has, which are capable of carrying these bombs, uh, are getting very old. And by supplying Germany with these advanced fighter planes, which are capable of carrying nuclear warheads, it suddenly puts Germany into a very strong military position. I think one can see Biden's mind that he wants to withdraw from Europe. Um, why spend money and effort on Europe that wants to go its own way? But by having Germany there as a strong partner, as it were, well, it can be left in Germany's hands. Very much when we turn to the Middle East, we see the same situation. Uh, Israel is being built up, so she can stand on her feet. America can withdraw, as it were, and trust that Israel will look after affairs. So very interesting developments just in the past uh, few weeks. So whose side are France and Germany on? Well, this is a headline from before the war started, that the EU's abandonment of Ukraine is shameful. Um, and th these are just some more headlines of the same vein. By its actions, Germany is propping up Putin's war machine as much as China. That was back in February. Very interesting chart uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Europe's top five arms exporters to Russia. This is in millions of euros. France, 152 million euros a year is supplied to Russia. Germany supplies 122 million euros uh, of armaments. Britain is in the top five, so it's way down the bottom 
with only 2.4 million um, of euros supplied. So you can see the interconnection between Europe and Russia. This is a huge market for them. And in fact, uh, the sanctions which were put on Russia when uh, 2014, when he took Crimea, France carried on supplying uh, a thousand night goggles uh, for the Russian army and lots of weaponry has gone since then, all to be used against Ukraine. Um, and another headlines more recently, this war is a shameful episode in German history. Tensions arise as Germany fails to deliver weapons promised to Ukraine, not only not delivering them, but the ones she has delivered are so antiquated, they're actually dangerous and can't be used, which is just getting rid of her rubbish and sort of passing it off and making it look as if she's helping Ukraine, but far from the case. And then a week ago, <clears throat> business as usual as Russian firms ignore Russia boycott. And uh, France is very active in trying to bring about a resolution through peace talks. And what Truss is very much afraid of is that if it's left to France, then they were so eager for a peace agreement so that they'll give in to anything that Russia says in order that they can get back and trade and overcome the sanctions because they've taught that if uh, Russia stops the invasion, well, the sanctions will be lifted. We'll go back to normal. Now, Putin has very strong control uh, of uh, what the West needs. Russia has the power to hobble key industries in the US and Europe by restricting supplies of metals. And it's not only that, but I found this fascinating again last week. Um, the amount of oil that Russia exports to Europe is virtually equal to all the rest that she supplies to all the other countries put together. So by craft, that's what Daniel said, Russia has brought Europe into this complete dependence upon her energy, upon her rare metals for her industry. So it's got to end up that uh, there is some agreement which allows Russia to have what she wants in order that France and Germany and Italy and the others uh, can go back to normal. And again, you can see the craftiness of Putin Normally, oil is traded in dollars. That's the universal currency for oil. But he's been pushing the euro. And in fact, this uh, chart last year is of Russia's trade with China. The top line is revenue from, or the, the amount that was done in dollars. Uh, and the bottom line is the amount done in euros and 2014 euro was zero. Now you can see how they completely crossed and the vast majority of money that China pays to Russia for what she imports is in euros. So again, you can see how that entraps Europe. She doesn't want to do anything which upsets Russia 
because Russia is using her currency and, you know, it would be foolish to uh, destroy that currency. And so, again, you can see how uh, Russia is very crafty and all the oil and the gas that Europe buys is all traded, uh, not in dollars, uh, but in euros. So we, we can see the close linkage and the great changes, I believe, are shortly going to take place, which will solve the problems in the Ukraine, but bring about this identity of a beast system and a dragon system cooperating together under one head, the Vatican. So just finally, time has nearly gone. It has gone into it, but never mind. Um, we saw at Rugby Prophecy Day how the Abraham Accords have remarkably sprung into life and made great transformations in the area there. But what has been so interesting just in the past few weeks is the great change in attitude between Egypt and Israel and Jordan and Israel. They signed up to a peace agreement, Egypt back in 79, so 40 years ago, more and Jordan in 1994, so nearly 30 years ago. And it's a cold piece, nothing much has happened. But that's all changed. Last week, Egypt hosted this summit in Egypt on Egyptian territory with the UAE and Israel and himself. And uh, what was so remarkable is that, yes, Bennett was able to freely go, weren't any riots in Egypt, freely go visit the Egyptians and have this summit meeting to what they're very afraid of is the situation in Iran. And so that was an important transformation, uh, the change that has come about in Egypt's relationship to Israel. It's now war peace. And Jordan this week received the uh, Israeli President Herzog with military honors. Now, all the visits in the past have had to be made in secret because there'd be revolutions. Now the, Egyptian, the Israeli president has been able to go openly uh, and meet with the Jordanian king with full military uh, honours, as it were. And, you know, a historic first. After 30 years, uh, almost, uh, we now have seen a real warm peace between Jordan and Israel and Egypt and Israel, because they are important. We know from Ezekiel 38 that Jordan is the refuge for fleeing Jews because that area escapes from Gog's invasion. He comes down the coastline into Egypt, takes Egypt, comes back up, takes Jerusalem, and the Jews are able to flee into Jordan for a place of safety, as I did in AD 70. So what we've been seeing is that uh, Israel's enemies are now becoming friends, uh, as we described at Prophecy Day uh, Rugby. Goat nations are turning into sheep nations to be blessed in the kingdom. And so we can see these Abraham Accords, as this headline says, they're not built on shifting sands. Uh, they've got a real power behind them. And again, just last Sunday and Monday, Israel hosted a meeting between the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, 
and the Egypt and the United States and Israel. And they met in Israel. Again, that was a historic meeting. They were able to, the Arabs were prepared to come. Admittedly, they didn't hold it in Jerusalem. It was down um, in the, the Negev. Um, but they were able to come uh, without great protest from their fellow countrymen, as it were. Such is the great change. And this Negev summit, as it's been called, they're now going to turn into a regular meeting. Because what they're wanting is Israel to be their defence against Iran. They can see America withdrawing herself, allowing uh, Iran to uh, have the sanctions lifted, which will give a lot of money to Iran, especially with oil prices being what they are. And they can see that this wealth is going to be used against them. So they're looking to make a kind of Middle East NATO with Israel providing their defense and military defense. They'll supply the money. It's truly remarkable, brothers and sisters, that we're having this great change of attitude between Israel and her neighboring countries. As Bennett said, the Middle East is changing and it's changing for the better. We're cultivating old ties and building new bridges. We're rejuvenating old peace and charging it with a new energy of the Abraham Accords. We're working together to overcome the old forces of darkness and build a new future that is better, brighter and promising. Now we know that Israel's doing this of our own strength. Ezekiel 39 tells us that this time of peace, which is unfolding before our eyes, is a time of trespass in God's eyes. Because instead of trusting in God to defend them, they're trusting on their own skills and their own military might. But this is all in the purpose of God. It's to bring about this time of peace in order that the nations might come against a prosperous Israel and invade it and destroy it. So this uh, headline, looking back at that meeting last Sunday, Monday, uh, Israel summit shows ties with Arabs moving from ceremony to substance. The deals have also promoted Egypt, a longtime peace partner, to engage more meaningfully with Israel as Cairo tries to revive its role as Israel's bridge to the Arab world. And Israel's meeting with these people is one of the strongest signs yet that the countries are beginning to reap the dividends of normalization deals, confirming a profound realignment of Middle Eastern powers. And this is what we've been waiting for. We've known for years, centuries, Bible students have seen Ezekiel 38, a time of peace in the Middle East. We are beginning to see it, brothers and sisters. Absolutely amazing. So just finally, just uh, two slides. Uh, Israel and the United Kingdom. This is a headline on uh, 30th, Thursday, Wednesday. Israel, UK becoming closer than ever. Um, this was an opinion piece written in the Jerusalem Post, and this is what he said. The relationship between the United Kingdom and Israel shows a series of interwoven interests and of mutual support in many fields. Israel has a very loyal and engaged friendship with this country, the UK, a relationship that is infrequently recognised as being of immense benefit to both. Recently signed Memorandum of Understanding between Israel and the UK clearly describes a roadmap that will enhance and deepen cooperation across many areas. 
from increased diplomatic consultations, further cooperation in defence and security, a UK-Israel Innovation Summit, and plans for a new free trade agreement, this roadmap is extremely ambitious and will elevate the current relationship to new levels. That's exciting, isn't it? After all the ups and downs of the relationship which Britain has had, as Matthew said, in these last days, at the end of the 70 years, there's this great change in Britain and her relationship with the Middle East and with her uh, Commonwealth companions. And so we see these change in the map between those countries which are for Israel and those who are against. And we see those that are for her, Egypt and Saudi Arabia and that region there, and Morocco and uh, India and Bhutan. These are all countries which are friendly together with Britain there. But ranging against her is a huge area. Uh, Iran, Turkey, Europe, we know is going to, is very anti-Semitic, is going to turn against Israel. They are, a lot of the things they do show utter hostility to Israel. We know that Russia uh, is to lead the invasion and is again anti-Semitic. Uh, we see that area there, that's got to be brought under Russian control to close that little gap there. And these other satellite countries, which were part of Russia, surely at the same time will be brought under Russian control to have the same attitude. And we know that Libya down there is to be part of the great assembly that comes against Israel. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we see great changes happening in quite a short period of time. And as we always say, we've got to remember, we will be called away before all these final steps are taken and the invasion takes place. So the Lord Jesus really is at the door. We've been saying this for a long time, but never before have we seen so many signs and indications that this day is very close. And so it behoves us, brothers and sisters, to spend every effort to be ensure in the mercy of God that we are on the Lord's side when he comes. So my usual slide uh, now changed because of the changes uh, two or three times or three or four times a week at the moment. So much news coming out, the snippets uh, go out, giving uh, articles which are used for writing milestones and doing these updates. Now every two months, the milestones, uh, every quarter, the Bible magazine. And just on that point, I was hoping <coughs> we'll get the new cover. Uh, the latest edition is just going to the printers any day now. And it's going to be devoted to Ukraine. I've, I've written three articles for it. Um, and if you contact Sister Angela Barnes, if you live in this country or whoever you're, Bible magazine person is, they're doing a very special offer. If you're not already subscribing to the Bible magazine, you can have a special Ukraine issue uh, for a special price if you contact her within the next day or two. So uh, wonderful things are taking place before our eyes. Brothers and sisters, let us remain watching and waiting and praying for our master's coming. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.